You're listening to the High Life Podcast, and I'm your host, Meredith Wadsworth. From understanding your lifestyle choices to your limiting beliefs, living your best life starts with honoring yourself every day. It is my hope to fill each episode with information and inspiration to guide you towards living your own intuitive, intentional, and fulfilling high life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the High Life Podcast. I am super excited to dive into today's episode. I bring on a expert in Ayurveda at long last, which is something I know a lot of you guys are super interested in learning more about. I've posted a little bit about Ayurveda, um, different principles and practices and things that I do on my Instagram um, and in my blog, such as dry brushing and tongue scraping but I am not one to really dive into the depths of Ayurveda as I don't think that reading An Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda really makes me an expert. So um, while I've learned so much from that book, it's an amazing book and you should definitely check it out, I wanted to bring on someone who really knows what she's talking about. And so today's guest is Nidhi Pandya and she is a third generation Ayurvedic practitioner. Her mother and her grandfather were both practitioners as well. And what I admire so much about Nidhi is her ability to really bring this ancient science and wisdom into more of a modern context. And she can really speak to many of the myths and misunderstandings that circulate around Ayurveda, particularly with the existence of all these online quizzes and dosha labeling and things like that, that I think people can really trip themselves up on. So she really dives into that and clarifies a lot of things for me that I think will be helpful for you guys as well. So I won't spend too much time talking now. I'll leave that for her. So let's dive into it. Nitty, welcome to the show. It's so awesome to have you here. Same here, Meredith. Um, I'm so excited to dive into the depths of Ayurveda with you today. It is something that I've been so curious about myself. And as much as I would like to say that I know all that there is to know, I'm unfortunately my reading of Ayurveda <laughs> Guide for Idiots is not going to cover it all. So <laughs> um, I uh, am really excited to just hear what you have to say in terms of your background being so in-depth with Ayurveda. Um, So why don't we just just sort of start with your story and how you got to doing what you do today. That's perfect, Meredith. And yes, the study of the Ayurvedic principles take lifetimes, not even a lifetime. So it doesn't matter how much you study, we've all just scratched the surface. But that being said, uh, to tell you a bit about me and how I got on this path, I was actually born into the family of a practitioner. So I'm a third-gen Ayurvedic practitioner, uh, where my grandfather was a practitioner, and I grew up in the same household as he did. So I grew up with the principles back in Mumbai, just really being ingrained into me as a young child. I was indoctrinated into this at birth. Growing up, however, I took these principles for granted, right? Because Uh, I didn't really feel responsible for my health. It was just the way we lived. However, I was always very curious seeing that we all, I I grew up in a family of 14 members. And what I saw is that each person, yeah, so like it was a joint family. And I saw that everybody responds so differently to what they consume um, 
orally, mentally, and physically, mm-hmm. that everybody's bodies re- respond very differently. So I was very curious from a young age into understanding what makes people tick, what makes them thrive. Well, all of that being said, I never studied, even though Ayurveda was such a part, it was basically intuitive to me. I did not formally study Ayurveda until I moved to the US about 15 years ago when I found myself working for a pharmaceutical company in a marketing job for a year. At the same time, I got sick because I kind of uh, just ditched my Ayurvedic lifestyle for that one year. And I got hemorrhoids. I had slipped just I couldn't move from the bed for a couple of months. And that's when I really went back to my roots and started questioning. I went back and got an education um, in Ayurveda where I studied from the Sanskrit texts. And what, what I had in me, what I had learned growing up intuitively, now just came to the surface and became even deeper. And that's what brought me to this path. Amazing. Wow. And what is Ayurveda for someone who's brand spanking new to this? Right. So what Ayurveda is, and I might explain this differently from what you may have heard before, but what Ayurveda is, what it really is, it's it's a life science, right? It's not, I'm not going to say it's an ancient, ancient Indian science. Yes, it does come from India. The principles were talked about 5,000 years ago, but it's basically a way of living. It's a way of living that honors your mind, your body, but more than anything, it honors your bio-individuality. So it kind of identifies who you are as a person in your mind and body, and then gives you principles to identify what is it that will nourish you personally at your bio-individual level, you know, at your, at your mind, what, what will nourish your mind, what will nourish your body, what, should, what is nourishing for you as a person could be different from what's nourishing for me as a person. Mm-hmm. But it's a life science that basically uses uh, diet. It uses herbs, but it also uses things that you can do in your, the kind of lifestyle you can maintain, whether it's a kind of yoga sana or it's a kind of breathing exercise. It basically provides all the tools that you may need as a person to come back or to remain into balance. Mm. And I think that's what makes me so drawn to Ayurveda that I am all about living intuitively and responding to what your body is trying to tell you. And rather than just focus on what the latest science says, Ayurveda reminds us that we are our own scientists and that all, all the answers that we really need are within our own bodies and turning inward rather than turning outward. Right, Meredith. And, you know, just to just to go a little, just to expand a little bit more on this, right? So it's not even always guesswork, right? It's not always just trying to listen to your body, which is eventually very important. But what is the tool? What are you listening to your body with? Mm-hmm. And that being said, right, what it's, the, the goal is to understand the five elements that exist that make up the universe, that makes up our body, it makes up everything that we consume. All of everything, all of Everything in this universe contains those five elements. Once we begin to identify those five elements naturally and intuitively, we will begin to understand which element needs replenishing in my body. But not only that, we'll also begin to understand what in the universe carries dominance in that element that I can use to replenish that lack of element in my own body. 
So let's say, for example, a Fuji tree and, and, and a red gala tree, like a Meredith and a Nidhi could be very different, right? Uh, like a Fuji apple tree and a red gala apple tree. And they may need different levels of sunlight. They may, they may need different soil. They may need different water. But today, when we read about health, the one-size-fits-all concept, it, it's very, very confusing. It's like going shopping and not knowing your own size. You know, it's like being in the yeah. middle of a shopping mall hundreds of different stores. And I'm like, am I size two? Am I size three? What is my gender? And am I going to live in a winter? Am I going to live in a place which has summer? So basically it's the most important thing is to know ourselves just as it is to know our size. When you go shopping, when you go shopping for health, you first need to know who you are at that elemental level. And that's exactly what Ayurveda provides. It's the code of the universe. And what are those five elements? I think I know them. I think it's earth, water, uh, fire, air, and ether. That is correct. Yes, those are the five elements. And it's such a game. It's lovely when you begin to identify those five elements for yourself. You basically don't need a, a health expert. You don't really need to go to anybody. Ayurveda is a science that trains you to be your own health expert if you were to do it right. Mm. And... So how do those elements um, appear or manifest in our physical bodies? Perfect. So let's take, let's, let's just take the element of earth, for example, right? So when you think about the element of earth or you think about the earth, you think about sand, you think about our earth as a structure, you think about something that's dense, that's solid, that's grounding, right? So you first begin by studying the properties of the element. And when we look at earth, Earth is grounding, earth is heavy, it gives structure, it's dense, it's heavy, all of those things. Then let's turn into our bodies, right? In our body, what's what gives us structure, what's heavy, what's dense? Our bones and our muscles. They are dominant in the element of earth. I mean, everything contains all five elements. It's just the dominance that you really need to understand. Yeah. So bones, muscles, even our bowels, right? They're all heavy, they're dense, they're grounding. If we didn't have bones and we didn't have muscles, we wouldn't have the structure. So the function of earth remains the same, whether it's in the universe, whether it is the barks of the trees, whether it is the ground by itself, or whether it is in our body. Our job now begins to begin. Our job now becomes to identify. Let's say I was I. I had weak bones. I had weak muscles. I wasn't a grounded person, and I'm sensing that you know I lack that element of earth. My job now becomes to identify what in the universe will replenish that element for me. For example, when you think about things like grains that are heavy, grounding, dense, nourishing. When you think about a ground, uh, you know, just where, uh, veg- root vegetables, they themselves are grounding, heavier, denser, nourishing. So we start beginning to identify that, hey, these are foods like, for example, grains have a lot more earth than a fruit does, right? Because the fruit is lighter. So you start comparing foods and you start comparing the elemental dominances in those foods for you to begin to identify what is required in your body whenever you're lacking a certain element. Does that make sense? Yes, it definitely makes sense. And to know that as you go about balancing out your imbalances, that what your body needs at one time is going to be different from what it needs at another time, whether that's seasonally or 
right? Like whatever kind of period of, of change that you're going through. Right. Absolutely. So this, the goal of this example was just to kind of give you a sense, like a little bit of a sense into how this works. Right. But the, but the reality is at any given point, you could have various imbalances and elements, but as you get on this path and you get on this journey and you start identifying the elements in your body and all around you, you automatically develop a skill. It's a very intuitive skill that is not so hard to develop where you begin to understand at any given point, whether you're traveling, whether it's a season, whether you're experiencing a certain imbalance or you have a cold, you have, you have, uh, you know, just, a, you have loose motions, whatever you have as a condition, you start identifying, hey, what elements have gone off here? And what do I need to replenish that? And what do I need to get, to make sure that it's processed in my body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much of that is affected by our constitution, our, our dosha? And can you explain doshas a little bit for us? Exactly, exactly. So doshas are exactly what this is. So what the doshas are, right? So it's basically identification that all of these five elements usually can be categorized when it comes to human beings. You know, they kind of pair up a little bit to give us three doshas, right? So we all have all five elements. Otherwise, we could not we could not survive. And uh, you know, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love at some point to talk about the functions of all those five elements, yes. the function that they carry. Absolutely. But for now, I'll tell you. For example, uh, earth and water pair up to give you one dosha. That's kapha. Um, fire and water pair up to give you a second dosha, pitta. And wind and ether pair up to give you a third dosha, vata. Now, for a person who has no idea about what doshas are, the simplest thing I can tell you is that constitutionally, all human beings can pretty much be divided into one of these three constitutions. Doshas are inherent constitutions that you may be born with or imbalances that you may experience. So we, so we, we can basically, depending on what, what your state of your body is, you can either fall into one of these three categories, which is kapha, pitta, or vata. Everybody has all three, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually one or two dominate, right? But before I even go to the, you know, just two dominating, just for the sake of keeping it simple, let's just say that for each person, one of these doshas is usually dominant and can, can really be noticeable in their bodies. So for example, right, somebody who is dominant in the kapha dosha, which is water and earth, which are a little bit heavier and, you know, just more fluid elements because water is more fluid. Somebody who's dominant in the kapha dosha will be basically, you know, a little bit slower, a little bit moister in their body. They're more prone to getting colds uh, and they can even, they may be calmer because they're more grounded. They, if they get sick, they probably have a lot of phlegm. They also put on weight easily. And their nervous system is a little bit slower than somebody who does not have a lot of kapha dosha. Kapha dosha is the slowest dosha that kind of puts everything uh, into, it kind of grounds everything in your body. Mm. Then when you go to the second dosha, which is the pitta dosha, that's the hot dosha right? So the hot dosha is basically, you know, that keeps you sharp and focused, keeps your metabolism active. Those people will probably be medium built. You know, they get red easily in the sun. If they have digestive disturbance, it's usually like a hot stomach or acidity, but heat is their primary symptom. Heat, focus, their negative emotion is anger. 
And we all see this around us. We are, like we all see people who are slower and calmer and more supple skin. That's the kapha dosha. And we see people who are just more active and snappy and action oriented and fiery. And those are the pitta people. And then there's a third dosha, which is vata, right? Vata is more wind and ether. Wind and ether can be very drying. So somebody with a vata constitution is lean, especially when they're younger. They're very lean. They have smaller features, but they're also drier. They also have they have drier skin. They have drier hair. Their nervous system can go crazy. They can be very hyper. They change their mind quickly. They don't get stuck or hung up on things because the wind moves so quickly. And they also have a very active nervous system. This is often very noticeable in children. You know, when you have kids, when they may be diagnosed with ADD or not even, but kids who look, lose focus very quickly are usually also the kids who have dry skin, are usually also the kids who are very sensitive to loud sounds because their nervous system is passing on the message of that sound so loud, so clear, and so quick that sounds and uh, fabrics, all of those things, their senses take in information very, very quickly. And that's the Vata constitution. It's a depleting constitution. However, that being said, it does not matter what constitution or where you feel your body is today. We can all find a way to balance ourselves. And those are the tools that Ayurveda provides, is for us to come back into balance and be able to balance this constitution, uh, balance the imbalance in the constitution and feel healthy. Wow. So you touched on this a little bit and I would love to sort of clarify a little more there's your constitution that is your the way that you were born you could be inherited it can be generic it can be the way that your bones are structured right but it can Mm -hmm. then there's also your the environment of your circumstances um the, the impact that those have that can make you be more dominant in one dosha or another especially for example in you know, modern society and city living, right? When I was living in New York, Mm -hmm. everybody and their mother was probably considered Vata in some way or another because everyone's always go, go, go. Everyone's always stressed out. Probably a combination of Vata and Pitta, even though their constitution may have been Kapha or Mm -hmm. one or the other. So how how can Mm -hmm. we know whether, or or in, in approaching our imbalances, is it more about treating our constitution or what we are experiencing in the moment because they can they can differ right so that is a great uh, that is a great question and I uh, so there's two things right so you may be born with like like you just mentioned right you were born with a certain constitution and then you may go out of balance and then feel like you're completely different from the time that you were born in and that is the reason why I personally in my personal practice I refrain from giving, from ascribing doshas to people. Mm. I encourage them more to experience, to really tune into what elemental imbalance are they facing? Yeah. What elements are acting up? And more and more in my practice, I encourage people to not marry a dosha. Because the truth is that sometimes in your mind, you could be feeling very vata, very like all over the place, but in your body, you could have a very hot stomach and feel like, oh my God, like this is, I have a heat symptom. This feels more like pitta. And when that happens, people get very, very confused. So I rather ask them that let's, let's think about what elements 
are really feeling dominant in your body and mind. And then let's work with that. So for example, right, Meredith, you said that people in New York, you see them all, they're like moving faster, like the wind all over the place, mind in a hundred places. That's all wind, right? That's all fast moving, happening quickly. And then you also see people can be, uh, people can be eating, you know, a lot of spicy foods, kombuchas, all of those heating foods. They also have a little bit of a fire in their minds because they're snapping at each other. They want jobs done quickly. So the two elements that seem to dominate in these are the elements of fire and the element of wind, right? I would rather work to, to kind of bring those two elements into balance rather than would try and look for a dosha that they belong to. Yeah. Does that make sense? Completely. But when it comes to... Ch- but when it comes to children, right, it's very, because children are so close to their original constitutions. There's so much in a structure, you know, going to school, coming back home, bedtime routines, that when it comes to kids, there is great success in trying to understand their original constitution and then working with that as they grow up to really keep them in a very balanced state. Yeah. And I think I think that makes sense, honestly, because kids are so much more um, intuitive already just because they haven't yet reached that level of life where they're so impacted by what's around them that it changes who, you know, their sense of self, they just are. And I think that's, what's so magical about kids. Right. Whereas adults are, uh, for some reason, modern society has us feeling like we need to define every part of ourselves and ascribe to certain labels, whether that's what kind of diet we follow, what kind of political party we follow, you know, what our job titles are, like everything needs a description. And ultimately, if something doesn't perfectly align with us, we left really lost in the dark in this gray area. And mm-hmm. I think that that really, it, it makes things so much more complicated than they really need to be. So I love, I love that that is your approach to Ayurveda as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because I see that all the time. Um, people just people focusing too much on what this, what something says they should be or should be experiencing and not actually, not actually looking at their cell at themselves, you know, in the moment and um, what they're, what they're actually going through. So right. that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Definitely. Meredith. For, for, for anybody who's, who wants to pursue the path, I would recommend don't get married to the dosha when you begin. Don't think that you don't take the dosha quiz unless you've really understood Ayurveda for at least a year or two. And even then, by then you will find no need to take the dosha quiz. Yeah. But otherwise, I, I, I highly suggest that do not take the dosha quiz. L- try and look at yourself at the elemental level. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and so what are the functionalities of those elements? I know that you mentioned you'd love to dive into that. So why don't we do that now? Right, right. And uh, Meredith, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work with you here as well. I'm going to ask you questions because Perfect. I think that's, you know, that kind of makes it. Okay. So what did we say about earth, right? Earth. And of course, if anything about earth comes to your mind, I'd love you to just kind of jump in and tell me, right? So uh, earth is grounding, it's dense, it's kind of gives Heavy. you structure, right? And that's it. Yeah, it's 
heavy, right? It's heavy. So that is the function of earth in our body as well, of grounding. It's like the, it's also the building block, right? They're like nothing would exist. There wouldn't be substance to anything if it didn't have earth in it, right? The element of earth, not really earth literally, but the element of earth, which is grounding, heavy, dense structure. And that's what gives things substance, right? Yeah. It's a building block. It's a building block. So even in our body, it's a building block. I mean, the modern, they can call it protein, but you'll see that even for your bones or your muscles, like that whole protein, that heavy grains, lentils, right? Things that are heavier and heavy nourishing and dense, those are the building blocks that you need. You need that for building your body and keeping it grounded and growing. Mm-hmm. And that's what the function of, the, uh, of, of, of earth is. Now let's go to water, right? Like what is, what is the basic property of water? It's fluid, right? The element of water is fluid. It's a carrier. It carries things from here to there. It also protects and softens things. I mean, can you imagine just having earth by itself? Like even when you have a fistful of clay or sand, right? What, it's so rough. So what do you need to make it softer? Yeah, you need that water. <laughs> you need that water, right? And that's why water is so important. It kind of, you know, binds things, blends things, carries things, softens things, protects things, coats things. And, and, and you see water in our body, not only in terms of blood and plasma, which are carriers, which, uh, but also mucus lining, that kind of your whole body has a mucus lining mm-hmm. that kind of softens things. It carries, right? It carries substances, your blood, plasma, even your reproductive fluids. If you'll see everything is carried in a fluid, yeah, because fluid, your enzymes, fluid kind of is able to carry things, to channelize things in one direction, right. to move that way. It removes and, friction um, within the system. Removes exactly. It removes friction within the system, and it keeps everything soft. Otherwise, you would be looking like astronauts and robots, right? Like we would be so stiff as human beings. Yeah, but that fluidity kind of softens things, and right, it'd be crazy, but. That's what really makes us softer. And if you see foods, right? Like if you'll see, like when you look at a block of cheese, which has definitely more earth. And then if you look at, uh, let's say a fruit like mango, you can see, okay, earth, of course it has earth because it has structure. Anything that has structure has earth, but then it also has some water to it. Does yep. that make sense? Yep. Now the element of fire and where does that manifest in our body? I mean, to begin with, we are warm blooded, right? So we are warm blooded. So you, that's, that's the evidence of heat. Our gut, our digestive system is constantly transforming whatever you put in there. That transformation, like any transformation in the universe requires heat. And that is a big function of the element of fire, cellular metabolism like any transformation requires the element of heat. Even your vision, even your thoughts, your nervous system, which is literally an electrical system right inside your body, all of that is the function of the element of heat. Like any depletion in that, right? Let's say depletion of heat in your gut is going to lead to a slower digestion because now your metabolism is slow. You see people with lack of fire. You actually even say this, oh my God, like she's got a lot of fire. People who are constantly thinking and transforming and taking action. Lack of fire in your nervous system will kind of make you a little bit duller, a little bit of just laid back, a little bit less there, you know? Yep. And that's the function of fire. And, and, and all of these elements exist in your mind as well as your body, right? So it's a right. physical as well as a mental level. The element of wind, that is the kinetic energy in everything, the ability for things to move, 
right? The, the reason why the apple can fall from the tree is because it has that, that kinetic energy inside the ability to move from one place to the other. But wind, so without wind, your blood would not be able, that the possibility of it even taking things anti-gravity, that is the quality of wind. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it gives the ability to your nervous system to pass impulses from touch to the brain. It kind of helps you to eliminate every morning. You know, the whole peristalsis movement is triggered by wind. It allows you to have a child and to push and get into labor. Any movement that's in your body, whether it's on the level of the mind or it's on the level of your physical plane, that's all dictated by the element of wind. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And then when you see excess of it, you see there's, you know, it, it dries you up and it kind of makes you go all crazy. Coating um, and gas and all those fun issues that we're seeing crop up everywhere with gut health, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think even more than that, anxiety, right? Like, yeah. because myelin sheath, which is a very soft fluid again, right? Myelin sheath is a soft, watery fluid. And when that, and wind depletes that. So now you have like a live wire in your body. It's a live wire, which is, you know, reacting to every thought, which is reacting to everything that's happening outside. So it makes you really, really anxious. And we're eating drier foods, Meredith, right? We're eating low fat foods. We're eating things that are drier and lighter. And all of those dry, light foods, like the dry, light wind, they're going to contribute to the element of wind in your body. And then that's why people are lighter sleepers and on all over the place. And they really need to replenish themselves when when you're depleted in wind with earth and water, you know, just more grounding and soothing elements. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and of course, I mean, we're, we're doing a very brief job of explaining this. This whole thing can, you know, do our, take hours and hours right? dive deep into. But the last element is the element of ether, which kind of is, the place from where the universe existed. It's the point of nothing. It's just the vacuum. But, but like whenever there's gap created, whenever there's vacuum in the universe, right? So the first element to make its way into that vacuum is wind, right? Let's say you have a yeah. small hole piercing, right? So what happens? Like, for example, when you deliver a baby and then you have ether, you have that gap created in your womb, very quickly wind can fill in the space of that gap, right? For example, and then what does that do? It kind of dries you out. So people have postpartum depression. People have a lot of bloating. People have sleepless nights after you've had a baby. People have rheumatoid arthritis. So the reason why ether is important for us to understand is because whenever there's ether created in our bodies, whether you've had a child or you've lost a loved one and there's a void created in your mind, you need to fill that void by grounding things so wind doesn't come and start attacking that ether. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. I never thought about it in that way before, but that makes perfect sense. So that is the element of ether. So these are five elements and this was just a little bit, like a little teaser into what they look like and what their functions are. But of course, um, one can dive as deep as they want into the subject. Yeah. So, so fascinating. And so many questions coming up in just that short amount of time, particularly, I think, as it connects to, um, you know, the the current state of gut health and where so much of our focus is these days and what we're finding in modern science um, as so integral to that mind-body connection. And the idea that you touched on that when someone's experiencing a lot of issues such as um, like IBS, bloating and constipation and all those things, how that relates to anxiety, I think it, it makes perfect sense explaining it from that perspective of the element of air. 
just as much as it mirrors the science that so much of our um, our gut impacts our our mental state, right, and our levels of serotonin, the happy hormone that is ma- is manufactured in the gut, and that impacting our um, overall level of happiness and joy and and things like that when our gut's out of out of balance. So, I think it's so cool. I think it's so cool that we're in this place now with um, with science and health that we can see how these ancient practices truly have ground and and science backed behind it, even though that science wasn't there back when the principles came to be. Oh, right. Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. And, you know, I mean, just because you brought up IBS and uh, even ulcerative colitis, right? People who have a lot of stress and anxiety. Anxiety is a wind dry emotion. Dry emotion depletes the mucus lining that protects the inner lining of your intestines. When there is no mucus lining, uh, your own acids or your own enzymes, which are hot, can literally drill holes and create ulcerative colitis. So people who kind of go into an attack or you know come back from remission, usually do in a very stressful period when their mucus lining is drying out because of that stress inside. And, and, and a lot of people miss this. Mm. So knowing, knowing some of these things now, what are some practical ways that we can start to incorporate Ayurveda into our day-to-day without, um, you know, trying to, to totally overwhelm anyone? Um, but just maybe some things that we could add maybe into our morning routine when we're in the kitchen and, um, when we're at work, things like that. Right, right. So I'm done. I'm just going to give you three simple tips. But before that, I'll tell you that I will ask everyone: don't start, don't adopt a that you just see online or you hear someone talk about it unless it appeals to your logical, intuitive brain, right? It has to make complete sense. I feel like just like introducing golden milk and this and that without really understanding where it comes from. Agree. So just. You know, so the three principles that I'll, I'll ask you to think about are something that should make sense to your to your intuitive, logical brain. And that is, first is we are diurnal mammals, right? So we are we are we kind of wake up and live and do our go about our day with the cycle of the sun, with the circadian rhythm, right? Because we're diurnal. Yeah. So honor that that you have a clock which matches with the clock of the sun. Like you match, you mirror the way the universe works, the earth works. By that, what I mean to say is the earth is wet and soggy, right? Like when you wake up, it's dewy, it's a little bit colder. Remember that even your body is a little bit of little colder, a little dewy. And evidence is people wake up with congestion, people have eye boogers, stuffy noses, because you're kind of like wet and fluid inside, just like the earth is. That is no time to eat something that's cold, Morning is no time to eat something cold because your body is already a little colder, just like the earth is. So that's a great time for a warm breakfast. Breakfast should always be warm. No fruits, nothing cold, no juices, right? And the, the reason I use the example of the cycle of the sun for this is because I want I, because I want people to understand why they're doing this, not because I'm saying so, but because you logically have evidence that your body is colder and a little bit moister in the morning. Uh, lunchtime is when the sun is at its peak, right? Even plants are best at their photosynthesis when the sun is at its peak. That, that's also the time when most people feel really hungry. Or So that is the time that your digestive fire, your enzymes are functioning at their best. Your digestive fire is ready for food. <clears throat> Do not skip lunches. That's the time that you eat a big, good lunch. 
by the time it's evening, you know, the element of wind has become active outside in the universe. Things are getting cooler again. Your digestive enzymes are also kind of receding and kind of settling down. That's not a time for a big meal. Dinner is always supposed to be light, unless you're working on a farm or climbing mountains and doing a very laborious job. You basically technically don't need dinner, but we, since we've started eating dinner, we can keep it very light. So just this, this principle, this that work with the cycle of the sun. Remember that's what's happening in your body, what the, what's happening outside on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my that's my biggest tip. Secondly, I'll say that you know just how how to disintegration of everything, breaking down anything. So when you add your food, anything that you consume, uh, make sure it has fuel, which is a good fat. Make sure it has fire, which is a good spice. When I say good spice, I, it could be anything that's not like chilies, but anything that's either a cinnamon stick, bay leaf, cloves, cumin, coriander seeds, thyme, oregano, everything that you eat, even black pepper, even dried ginger, right? When you have do these two components in place, so let's say that you're eating rice, make sure you have a little bit of olive oil or a good fat in it or ghee. And then make sure that there is a spice, whether you add black pepper to it, whether you cook your rice in with a bay leaf, what that's going to do, it's going to allow your body to effectively break down that food and absorb the nutrients the way that it should, because you're supporting it. Even if you go to cook in, you know, if you go and cook something if you cook it without the fuel and just put it in the fire it's going to char it's going to be barbecued and that's not what you want your food to be inside your stomach you want that good fuel with it the minute you add fuel it's not barbecued now it's cooked got it right so that's my second tip that you know always use a good fat and always make sure that there is uh, there is a good spice added to your food it doesn't have to be spicy it shouldn't be spicy rather mm-hmm. and then and, and then the last simple tip is do not mix a lot of different kinds of food you are not what you eat you're really what you digest and it's easiest to digest foods when they are uh, when when there's not a lot of variety, because every type of food, every type of grain requires a different set of enzymes, a different environment to really break down. So to keep it easier on your gut, you know, eat eat foods that combine well together, you know, which either belong to a same cuisine or don't go crazy with multi-grain or multi-cuisine meals. The simpler, the better. Um, I have a few questions about how we can, knowing these things, um, sort of compare and contrast them, I guess, with what we are, um, seeing more and more, especially in the media around, um, like things like, like food combining and eating things in a certain order. And for example, having fruit first thing for breakfast on an empty stomach, because it digests faster than anything else. And, um, and these kinds of principles that are coming into popularity, um, how do those, sort of fit into Ayurveda or, or, or do they not? Right. So the, so the couple of things here, right. When you're just talking about fruit, when you throw your fruit in the garbage, what does that do to your trash? Have you like, it starts smelling right away. It starts fermenting very quickly, right? We've all noticed that, right. That it starts fermenting very quickly. That's what it does inside your stomach. Basically, when you give it, when you give your gut fruit at a time when it's already cold and moist and it's not ready to really digest it'll go through faster it'll start breaking down very very quickly but in that breakdown process it's also going to start fermenting 
And now first thing in the morning, you've left, you, you, you've kind of created that environment in your gut, that smelly fermented environment. Everything else you eat afterwards will not be processed as well. Um, when you talk about the gap between modern science and Ayurveda, what I want to tell you is modern science is catching up to Ayurveda. It's not the other way around. Right. You know, in so because Ayurveda, um, a lot, Ayurveda spoke about the pituitary gland way before we had discovered. It spoke about the probiotic environment. Everything that we're discovering today and have held that belief. If, you've, if modern science has held a belief for more than 100 years, that belief can be traced back and found in your Ayurvedic. There's every, in your Ayurvedic text, because Ayurveda talks about every possible thing. It talks about ovulation on the 12th day. And these are things that were said 5,000 years ago, you know? But newer concepts, right, which are held for 50 years and less, they are not really time-tested. In 1970s, we spoke about sugar being a weight loss food. I mean, that's how new these things are. Yeah, right. So unless, un unless you can hold something for a whole generation and a half, right, I'm not going to say that um, I, I need to look at it through an Ayurvedic lens or, 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 or it has to be like, oh, wow, this, this, this is completely contra contradicting to Ayurveda. Because the truth is anything that's been around for a long time is completely in line with Ayurveda. And that is also because, Meredith, when you talk about intuitive science, you know, these sciences, Ayurveda is a science. It's really not, it's, you know, it's not an ancient belief system. It's yeah. a science. But the difference is, right, back in the day, the sciences emerged from our subconscious mind, which basically really knows everything. That's how mentalists and, you know, I mean, hypnotists work like that. We've all seen a show where somebody has been able to say things that they did not know existed in their deep subconscious mind. So the way these sciences were presented and, and, and you know, written down were they came from within. They came because we as human beings have a deep knowing of everything that exists in the universe, the nature of everything. At some point, as we evolved, we stopped trusting ourselves. We started trusting the five senses and the external world became more real than the internal world. So the need to prove everything externally became such an incessant need that today, unless we can prove it in a laboratory scientifically, we don't even trust ourselves. It's so true. And what are some ways that we can see Ayurvedic principles appearing outside of maybe our our physical, the way we are physically nourishing ourselves, but when we're applying them to the way that we, we call primary food, which is the nourishment that um, fuels us aside from food, like our relationships, our connection to community and things like that. How do Ayurvedic principles um, uh, appear in those areas of honoring ourselves? Right. So the, the basic definition of health in Ayurveda the, that's the, the basic definition, which is you need to have balanced doshas, you need to have balanced tissues, you need to have balanced uh, waste, which is you know balanced bowels and pee. You need to have a balanced fire, digestive fire. But more than anything, you need to have a content mind, spirit, and soul. Right, yes. like that's a that's a primary definition of health. So Ayurveda very much honors that, and the way the and, and, and the way to deal with that in the Ayurvedic understanding is that um, things like you know breathing, pranayam, yoga, meditation, 
taking time for yourself, relationships. Actually, all of those have been highly emphasized in Ayurveda. Even things like, you know, sexual indulgence, how much of it, sleep. Ayurveda is very much about nourishing yourself at those levels first, or at least simultaneously, even before you get to your physical reality. So that is extremely, that's very much a part of Ayurveda. But even for that, it's not one size does not fit all, right? To understand what is it that you need based on your own understanding and constitution. So Ayurveda definitely has... um, has prescriptions for those things as well. It also actually uses sometimes foods to bring about those balances or at least to start initiating and triggering uh, the direction to come back into balance when it comes to some of those things, when it comes to your primary foods or your basic needs. Interesting. Could you give an example? Uh, of, Of herbs? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, for example, right, the, um, like we said, anxiety is a very drying emotion, right? And it kind of dries you out. So something, right, like uh, like a licorice tea or a jasmine tea or like a floral tea will kind of also please your senses. It'll kind of go in and soothe everything. It will kind of nourish and moisten the mm-hmm. insides. And once that start ha- starts to happen, kind of starts to build up the myelin sheath on your nerves, you're automatically going to be experiencing some level of calm, you know, some level of grounding. So even foods can recontribute to those, to those depleted elements which exist in your nervous system rather than just on a physical plane. At the same time, even counseling, right? That's called Samvahan in Sanskrit and Ayurvedic texts. That counseling is a big part of every disease condition. So it comes with that, that, you know, every time, every time they have a treatment plan for any kind of disease condition that's mentioned in the Ayurvedic texts, it says that certain level of counseling is required for that disease condition. Yeah. That's, it's so insightful, I think. Um, And it's also, it's just so empowering the more that you um, can come to understand these, these imbalances or, um, and I'm not even just, not even just recognizing the imbalances, what it it almost has a negative connotation, but the strengths that you have within you from your constitution or um, whatever's manifesting for you. I think just having that sort of level of, um, being able to, again, you know, be your own, be your own inside, your own scientist and and your own health practitioner. Um, that's what I love so much about, about Ayurveda. Um, it all brings, brings you back to you (laughs) in a way. Basically, exactly, exactly. It starts respecting you for who you are, you know, and I think that, that really makes people feel in place with their own bodies to be able to have the power to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit just to ask you some questions about your personal practice and how it works when you're seeing clients um, and do you see them only in person or do you work with people remotely? How, if someone's here is listening and they'd love to work with you, how can they go about doing that? Right. So I, so I work with people um, across the world. I, I work with people of all ethnicities and I, the way I work is I kind of put people onto a program, right? So either eight weeks, 12 weeks, or 16 weeks. And we kind of try and identify where is it, the, the root cause for where, the root cause and the place for where they might have gone out of balance. 
Then we work with a dietary lifestyle and herbal plan to bring them back into balance. But I also give them, I, I teach them, I provide them with all the tools and resources that they would require to kind of ingrain these changes to make them their second nature. So that at the end of the that at the end of the period of the program, they basically can become their own health practitioner. Mm. That all the transformation that we bring is through information. So there's a lot of support. There's a lot of hand-holding. I, I basically become the mama for, those, for that period, right? <laughs> but it's, it's a process of learning, right? So I'm like, if you cannot learn, I mean, it's my challenge to anybody that I work with. If you cannot, if this is not going to make sense to you, I don't want you to do it. Like that's very, very important unless it can appeal to you. The only way you can keep something right for good, the only way you can make it sustainable is if you, keep, if you can understand why you're doing it, where it's coming from and what it's going to do for you. Yep. And that is a big part of my practice. So I do work with people um, and I work with people uh, across the world. And I, I, I rather, instead of doing a personal consultation, I kind of work with them and take them through a journey, which is very, very fulfilling for me. Amazing. Love that. So I will definitely link to your practice. Um, if there's anything else that you'd like me to share in the show notes, maybe how someone can find you on social media or are you on Facebook or anything, um, feel free to share that here. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, people can link up, I'll give you my Instagram and, uh, and my website. Those are the two easiest places to find me. Okay, perfect. Will do. And lastly, if do you have any recommended resources or books that would be great for someone to dive a little bit deeper into um, if they find that this is really resonating with them? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. None of the modern books are very appealing to me because they're very exciting and enticing, but they, but they don't really they go wider rather than going deeper. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Going wide. It gives you such a broad array, but it yeah. doesn't go deep. Um, but I would recommend kind of going back to an original text, like an Ashtangrudayam, which is the original text. It's a very complicated name. But going back to read, or just reading about the five elements, just kind of devour, read whatever you can find about the five elements of Ayurveda. And don't even move to the doshas. By the time you've done that, let's say for a few weeks, then you can read anything and then already know whether it's relevant, it's irrelevant, it's made up, it's modernized or not. Yep. But that's where you begin. Just begin by reading about the five elements. That's the best advice I'll give you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nidhi. I think this was an amazing introduction to Ayurveda um, and a great Thank refresher you, for me. Um, I think this could definitely call for a, a, a round two um, to dive deeper into some of these topics here. But um, hopefully this Love is a great starting place for people to incorporate some of these um, mindful practices into their life as as they feel called to do, um, right? Not, not trying to um, influence anyone one way or another, but to really to do what feels good and intuitive to them. Of course. I'm, I'm, I'm glad this was helpful, Meredith. I really, it, was, it was really fun talking about the subject that I feel so passionate about. Amazing.
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I got so much out of that conversation and I plan to bring Nitty back on for sure in the future to do a deep dive on some other more specific topics in Ayurveda. So if there's anything specific that you would love to learn more about, whether it's related to Ayurveda or to any other topic that you have heard on the podcast, please leave it in a review, send me a message, an email, a DM, Instagram, find me any way that you can and let me know what more you would love to hear about on the podcast. I want to be able to bring you guys anything that you have questions on or that you would love to explore and please feel free to leave a review, rate, subscribe, send it to your friends, all of the above. I'm so grateful for you tuning in today and always and wherever you are, be there fully. Take care and I'll see you on the next episode.